how to OT. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode, we hear from OT superstar, Dr. Karen Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs was calling in all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, and there was a little bit of internet connectivity issues, so that may affect the sound quality at a couple spots during the interview, but overall, it's an awesome interview, Um, so sorry if the sound goes in and out a couple of times. Let's get straight to the interview. Okay, today we have Dr. Karen Jacobs calling in all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Karen Jacobs is a past president and vice president of the American Occupational Therapy Association. Uh, She is a certified professional ergonomist, a licensed OT, and a current uh, associate dean of digital learning and innovation at Sargent College, which is a part of Boston University's occupational therapy program. Thank you so much for being on the show, Karen. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you for having me. You've been a part of so much published research in our field, whether it's about the interaction between the environment and human capabilities, ergonomics, management, leadership, traumatic brain injury, or OT essentials. You've kind of done it all and contributed so much to our field. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been so grateful to be part of this profession. So it's, it's very nice to give back. Yeah, well, we all appreciate it. I wanted to ask you kind of as an expert in digital learning, um, do you think digital ways to consume research, maybe let's say by a podcast, for example, are uh, viable and can be effective? Well, you know, I'm glad, Matthew, that you said that. Um, I have been hosting uh, a webinar series, which you could consider um, could easily be converted into um, a podcast uh, mm. for the journal work uh, that I started almost 30 years ago. And the webinar series called um, Learn at Work. And I invite authors who have published in the journal on their research to give a webinar. And it's an audio webinar, so that could easily be converted to a podcast. And we right now have a YouTube channel. But again, digital learning, innovation, all of that, it's changing so quickly. So a podcast might be the right direction to go, just like what you're doing. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I, I really think that uh, digital learning and technology can improve learning. And, and hopefully, as you know, the purpose of this podcast to improve dissemination of research. So I think what you're doing uh, with, with that project, Learn at Work, sounds really interesting. And one interesting project you've been a part of uh, is called Project Career. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this program? Sure. Well, over six years ago, um, a group of interprofessional um, educators, researchers, scholars uh, came together and we submitted a grant to um, Nidler. At the time it was called something else, but it's now called Nidler. What we wanted to do was to develop a project that melded uh, cognitive support technology with intensive case management to help undergraduate students, and these could be two-year or four-year undergraduate students with traumatic brain injuries, be able to be successful in completing their education and for getting a job. And so we were so thrilled 
the group came together um, from um, all over the country. And um, we had people from Kent State University in Kent State, Ohio. Another person, um, another team came from West Virginia University in West Virginia. And we were all brought together to consider what we could do together. And the woman who brought us all together um, is um, Eileen Elias. And she was a former commissioner of mental health in Massachusetts. And she knew each of us individually, and I'm talking about the co-PIs. Mm -hmm. um, and so she had this vision of us all coming together to create this project, what we ended up calling Project Career. So we um, worked remotely and submitted this grant, and we were very fortunate to have the grant um, approved, supported over $2 million the first round that we, we submitted it. So I, I always remember us coming together uh, the first time at Kent State and meeting each other for the first time. And again, this is over six years ago. It was a grant. And um, introducing ourselves. And I was so excited as an occupational therapist because I was the only one at that time on the team working with folk rehab, psychologists, educators, and to have occupational therapy be on this very prestigious team. Bill Rumrill was the um, PI at Kent State, and he is world-renowned for his work in vocational rehab, and in particular working with people with multiple sclerosis. And then Deborah Hendricks, we call her DJ, um, coordinates the Job Accommodation Network, uh, JAN, at West Virginia, and these are names that you know I only read about. Um, I knew Phil before because he's on the editorial editorial board of the journal Work, but I had never met DJ. So we came together, and um, we really studied the evidence literature to see what is missing. And what was missing was that traumatic brain injury is a very serious public health problem. It affects you know over. Um, to maybe almost 3 million Americans each year. Of those people with TBIs, about 75% of them are classified as mild, but we think that's underestimated. And what we find is that even if someone's TBI is, the person's told it's mild at the time, it could be in concussion from you know, um, playing a sport, despite sort of this low severity level, we find that five to 15% of these individuals go on to develop chronic and persistent TBI-related symptoms that are causing social and functional uh, limitations. And we find also that college students with TBIs are three times more likely to drop out of school as compared to peers without disability. So, you know, there's really... A, a need. Mm -hmm. um, and the other, you know, uh, important statistic for this to support Project Career was that about 80% of college students with TBIs report problems with cognitive demands of classes. So that led us to believe that we should create this demonstration project. And so back to what is Project Career? Professional demonstration project that provided continuous support and, and um, services 
to college-age students or college students with a history of a TBI. And the program, again, was designed to improve employment success through assistive technology. And the assistive technology that we selected was iPads and selected apps for the student and mm -hmm. individualized career counseling services to help these students get volunteer jobs, maybe internships, and eventually to be able to work. It sounds like a, an all-star team working on this project. Um, the obviously need for it, which uh, you, you illustrated for us. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you, you found that students with TBI have reacted positively to these cognitive support technologies. How exactly does the iPad and those apps and the, the individual counseling help these students? Well, thank, thank you for asking that. Now, I'll, I'll go back in time a little bit because this is, this is important for, for research. You have to select a good instrument um, for assessment. And so um, one of the instruments that we used was created by uh, Marcia Schreuer, who is another person on our team. And she created the Matching Person and Technology Assessment. And so after recruiting students to participate in the three sites, again, Boston University is one site, West Virginia is the other, and Kent State, all of these um, participants took this matching person technology assessment. And that allowed us to assess their attitudes and feelings towards technology, um, any current supports they had, uh, to, rate, to be able to rate their abilities for reading, comprehension, time management, hearing and seeing, all of the client factors that were important so that we'd be able to individualize um, technology. We selected the iPad because it's a very common tool colleges and universities. And we wanted to have something that would allow the students to not look different in their classrooms. And I think you'll probably, you know, in any class that you've taken, you'll see lots of people with tablets. And so that's why we selected that. And so what we were able to do through this assessment was to find out the participants' attitudes, their feelings, perspectives towards technology, their comfort level with technology. Not everybody um, is comfortable with technology. And for them to self-report their abilities like reading and comprehension, um, and their physical, their physical abilities as well. So once we got all that information, at each of the three sites, there's a technology and employment coordinator. And those are the people who really implement Project Career. The co-PIs are, are there to support and to recruit, to maybe do some mentoring and supervision. But it's the technology and employment coordinators, the three of them, that really uh, were the front lines of working with the students. And I want to give a shout out to Amanda Narvell, Deborah Minton, and Elaine Sampson, who were the technology and coordinators. And so what they would do, um, based on the matching person technology assessment, is to individualize cognitive support technology. Again, in our case, the iPad and apps and they would do one-on-one -on -one training with the students to make sure they were comfortable with using the iPad and to select apps that would help the student be successful. And I can give you an example. So we might have a student that perhaps 
sustained a, a TBI from an explosion. Um, maybe the student is, maybe they were at the marathon bombing and we'll use that as a, as a hypothetical case here. And um, the student's having problems. And so they go through the assessment and with the assessment, it's identified that time management is an issue and organization and planning is an, an issue. And perhaps stress management is another issue. And so our technology and employment coordinator, and mine was Amanda Nardone, Mandy, would then find apps that could address those issues. And so, for example, time management, we might have an app called 3030, and we might have uh, Planner Plus as an app for organization as well. And for stress management, we might suggest that we look at an app um, for yoga or meditation. And again, these are individualized. And what we would do is they would meet on a regular basis with the technology and employment coordinator to go over any changes that they're seeing using the apps to the app work. Um, and, um, and also have really intensive vocational case management. So maybe the student wants to do a volunteer job and has never created a resume they would work with them. Maybe there's a student that wants an internship, but it would be good to maybe meet someone in that field ahead of time. Such an appointment could be set up. So the technology and employment coordinators really intensively worked with the student and they um, assessed them every six months and 12 months, but maybe they met with them on a weekly basis. And what we did was um, there was always post-graduation follow-up where there was employment support for the students even after they um, graduated from the program. I thought I would share some of the most commonly used apps because your listeners might find it really interesting for themselves. And there's one app in particular, Matthew, that I think you know all of us could use and it's called Notability. And this is an app that you can use in the classroom with the permission of your professor, you can upload uh, a their PowerPoint. You could write, over, write all over the PowerPoint as they're speaking, uh, again, with permission of the professor. And so, you know, real time, take your notes. Uh, Voice Dream Readers, another one. Khan Academy is great. Khan Academy has many, many different free courses that people can access. Perhaps, you know, maybe you're taking algebra and it's really very challenging. This is another um, uh, way of learning the material to reinforce what you're learning in class. The calendar apps are great. I mentioned um, Meditation, Meditation Studio, and Yoga Studio were really apps that we recommended on a fairly regular basis um, if it was uh, what the student needed. Those are awesome recommendations. Thank you so much. Project Career sounds like it's such a well-designed program that students are really getting individualized and intense attention um, and intervention that is being effective. I'd love to share outcomes if I could. So um, when Project Career ended, we had 151 participants. Uh, about 55 were male, that's, um, and about 45 were female. And their ages ranged 17 to 52, um, and their mean was 26 years. And interesting, I think, is how 
they sustained their TBI. We had the most number, almost 30%, through a motor vehicle accident. And then this percentage, which was almost 14, was um, through combat. And then um, assault or a gunshot was about 55.3%. Falls were 13, almost 14%. Playing sports, and a lot of times people don't realize that potentially heading a soccer ball might cause some kind of traumatic brain injury. And we had 19% of our people saying that you know, playing a sport, they sustain some kind of traumatic brain injury. So what is our outcomes? As of today, 56 students graduated. This is out of the 151. 14 students have graduated and are continuing their education. Of the students who graduated, 29 of them are full-time employed and 14 of them are part-time employed. But one of the most striking um, statistics is that uh, upon enrollment in project career, on average, a student's GPA was 2.87. When they finished project career, on average, our GPA went up to 3.03. That's amazing. And it's really from the right, I think, intervention or project activities that really made it a success. We've had 100% productive and meaningful post-graduation activities. And we really see a difference in baseline and follow-up that most of the students have a more positive experience with technology over the time in project career. So someone might have come in and said, oh, I can't use this technology. And I remember one student in particular who said, don't even give me the iPad. I'm, I'm just not going to use it. And in working with the technology employment coordinator, over time, he decided to use it. And it became very successful um, as a tool to help him be successful in school. So I'm very proud of Project Career. We're hoping that um, we will get funded. Um, one of my colleagues is submitting a PCORI grant that will include Project Career in it. And we're hoping that we'll have all the right ingredients for this grant and that we'll see Project Career implemented again. Yes, I, I hope so too, because those outcomes are amazing. And I, I wanted to ask you, how could a, a practitioner maybe working with clients who have experienced a TVI see some of those same outcomes and improvements in learning and engagement by incorporating technology into their interventions with their clients? Absolutely. And I'm very happy to have anyone reach out to me. And we are so happy to share the project career program completely. What we do we have a website that you can go to. Um, again, you know, this is all information that we want to have out uh, in the public domain. And if anybody is using the Job Accommodation Network, the Project Career website is, is hooked to that. So that's another fabulous resource, uh, the Job Accommodation Network. So yes, and you know, we have worked with clinicians. We had clinicians who were making the referrals of their clients to Project Career. So it's definitely something that can continue and to be a collaboration with many different disciplines. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that information and hopefully some of our listeners are able to access it and um, incorporate 
uh, some of those things and see the positive outcomes that you've seen with, with some of their clients. Yes, I think, you know, we're so um, grateful to have had that support and to have worked with all of the clients, the 151 uh, students who participated with us. That's great. And I, I guess another aspect of Project Career is this emphasis on interprofessional collaboration. And how is that something that you've used specifically uh, to produce uh, positive health and life outcomes? Well, you know, I'm so glad you asked that because prior to doing Project Career, I had submitted many, many grants and occasionally they got funded, but I wasn't being successful. And it wasn't until I became part of this interprofessional team and we all got to know what each distinct value was of each of the professionals that we started um, being able to get a grant like Project Career and to see the value of interprofessional practice. And so I encourage all of your listeners and students, um, future practitioners, to really get to understand what other professionals are doing, where you work, or just in general. So a lot of times when we look at interprofessional teams um, in occupational therapy, it might be you know, a physical therapist, um, someone in speech, depending on where you are, maybe a nurse, maybe it's a physician, but think even, even broader. You know, what about social work? As we move into primary care, maybe we should think about collaborating with other people. I'll give you another example of something I do. It's not research, um, but it is a collaboration. I collaborate with the nutrition program at Sargent College. Um, it's the Sargent College uh, Sergeant Choice Nutrition Center. And for the past 10 years, um, I have been um, teaching healthy cooking uh, through their uh, nutritious vegetarian recipes. And I do that in the dorm. I don't think I appreciated the connection um, that occupational therapy can have with um, a dietitian and a nutritionist until I started that collaboration. And I would love in the future to um, uh, create a research project with them and to demonstrate the connected value of interprofessional education and practice. Absolutely. That sounds like an excellent opportunity to, to collaborate there. And you're obviously a, a professional collaborator with, with other professions. What specifically can you recommend to OT practitioners to create or start um, developing interprofessional relationships? Well, I think number one is that you have to feel competent and confident, as um, Ellen Cohen said in her Slego lecture, with who you are as a professional. You need to really understand the distinct value of occupational therapy so that when you approach other professions and um, share your ideas for collaboration, you can clearly say what you'll be contributing to effective client care. So that would be my number one advice um, to start off with and to, to think differently, think outside the box. Think about how you know, working with other professions, you can really help improve outcomes for the people we serve. And think about the future. 
you know, where's healthcare going and, and how can you be there um, to address some of the really demanding issues that we're seeing in healthcare as we see changing populations that we're working with and, and future populations that are at need. Yeah, those are some clear examples of what OTs at, at any level can, can start doing if they want to incorporate more interprofessional practice into, into what they do on a daily basis. Let's uh, shift uh, focus now to, to ergonomics, if that's okay with you. Um, so this is a topic I wish I knew more about and don't know too much, but I do know it's important in preventative health and in adapting the environment to help people who have maybe chronic injuries or disorders. And I wanna ask you in what settings and with what client populations would occupational therapy practitioners use ergonomic principles or interventions? Well, that's a, that's a good question. So ergonomics is actually in our ACOAT standards. So students are learning about ergonomics and its application in a wide variety of settings. So I interpret ergonomics um, and the word means knowledge of work to be socially purposeful activities that people do. So I don't think of ergonomics as only in settings where there are adults like your workplace or you know, in industry or manufacturing. I look at the application of ergonomics much broadly, and um, I look at it with children. And I can explain, you know, a, a study that we did regarding um, ergonomics and backpack. So I start with it. It can be the schools, it can be preschool, and the teachers, well, preschool teachers, and and the kids going to school, the people retiring, and and older adults. So it's really almost across the lifespan where you can apply ergonomics and where you can work with people in all different settings. So perhaps what I can do is share the study I did with um, a physical therapy professor in Ireland. Um, and I do wanna give a shout out that all of the research that I do, I always include students. So Project Career had many, many, occupational therapy students involved at the BU Center. And in particular, what we did was we made Project Career a level one fieldwork site. So um, we had students participating in that way. And um, if we were doing any writing or presentations, they were involved. So I want to do, just do a little shout out how important it is to um, look at including students on all levels, you know, a master's student, um, a bachelor's student, um, a doctoral student in, in your research. So I'm gonna go back in time once again. And um, in, oh boy, it was when I was AOTA president um, around 1998, we identified that there were, was an issue with uh, children carrying backpacks. And the evidence literature really wasn't there uh, to guide us, we approached L.L. Bean to see if they would be willing to work with us on creating a backpack awareness initiative. Uh, they did. Um, and then AOTA decided that we would not align ourselves with any company. And we started 18 years ago, this month, um, National School Backpack Awareness Day. 
where we use the evidence literature, and again, in 18 years, 20 years, uh, the literature is now evolving, and we have some really great outcomes um, so that we know how to provide effective uh, education to make sure that there are no issues with backpacks. So um, I've been part of you know, the initiative um, for this time, but I wanted to conduct um, a research study that looked at parental awareness of backpacks. Because when we looked at the evidence literature, there was lots of research on you know, how heavy is a backpack, um, how far are children carrying it, you know, or do they have any kinds of symptoms? Does their back hurt? They have redness in the shoulders, headaches, things like that. But we didn't see anything related to parents. So my colleague, Sarah Dockrell, who um, is at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, um, we decided to do a research project that would be international between uh, a comparative study between Irish and US parents, which was really quite exciting. And given the global nature of, of school back carrying, um, we decided to try to understand uh, what parents knew about backpacks. And so the study objective was to investigate parental awareness of factors related to carrying a backpack. And so we put together um, a survey that had 30 items and we had a purposeful sampling uh, methodology that we used. You know, um, we in the United States, um, our team looked for parents in, in many different communities. We distributed the questionnaires to parents of primary school children, and we did it through their schools. In the case of ours, we did some of it even remotely. We used technology uh, to have the parents complete the questionnaires. So um, a total of 700 parents in Ireland uh, participated, and in the U.S., we had 444, excuse me, 256. I was increasing that number, 256 in the U.S. Um, I knew I was saying the wrong number as it came out of my mouth. But 700 parents uh, between the two countries participated, which is a fairly good number when you think about it. And what were our results? Um, generally, parents had um, a satisfactory awareness of the appropriate school bag types. And what we did with the questionnaire, we actually had pictures of all the different school bag um, backpacks, a uh, variety of them, not every single uh, one that existed, but you know, by categories. Um, and, but we found that parents had a satisfactory knowledge of the types of school bags and that the majority of the children owned a backpack. Not every child had one. We saw uh, in Ireland about 89.9% of kids had backpacks. And in the U.S., more, about 94%. Parents disclosed that they felt that um, their child wearing a backpack was the most suitable way of them bringing whatever tools and equipment and books that they, they needed. In Ireland, it was almost 70% the parents said that that's the most suitable way. And in the US, it was about 88%. Interestingly enough, more Irish parents, about 29%, um, were in support of wheeled school backpacks. 
as compared to the US, which was about 6%. six um, And this is interesting because, and I think you know, perhaps the lower percentage for the US here was that schools, many schools are not allowing children to have wheeled backpacks for many different reasons, even though that might be a, a correct alternative to one wearing on your back. What we found um, that we were really excited about was that the majority of parents, 70, almost 71% in Ireland and um, about 56% in the US wanted more information and that they wanted the information as a handout. So give me a piece of paper, I, I want that. That was almost similar numbers, 78% in, in Ireland and, and 70, almost 72% in the US. And fewer wanted it online. So what it shared, what it tells us is that there are some gaps in how information or knowledge translation needs to be provided and that parents are knowledgeable about backpacks. They probably hear about it on the TV, radio. The New York Times this year had a pop-up about backpacks um, and, and um, referred people to AOTA and, and information there. But that parents really want to have this sheet of paper. Maybe they'll hang it on the refrigerator as a reminder of what are the right ways of selecting a backpack, packing it correctly, and wearing it correctly. That's a that's a very interesting finding. Not only, not just about you know the the differences between backpack use and added towards towards um, backpacks in Ireland and and America, but also how people want that knowledge and want to to receive. Um, that information that is that is very interesting, and I love what you uh, what you mentioned about how important ergonomics is to consider across the lifespan um, and with any population, whether it's adults in working environments or kids at going to school and and what types of backpacks are are best for them. Um, I think that's something that uh, can be overlooked sometimes in regards to ergonomics. One of the things that I've used um, our journal work as a platform for publishing articles related to ergonomics in children. And um, I'm a board certified ergonomist, so um, I wear a little bit of a, a different hat. I'm active in the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society in particular, and we have a, a, a technical committee um, that's called Children's Issues. And um, it's a great forum for people to see the application of ergonomics um, with children, you know, from the design of a car seat to, you know, again, a backpack for a child um, to the classroom chairs and desks. So there's so many ways that ergonomics can be applied. And the good news is that our occupational therapy students are graduating with knowledge in ergonomics, but I believe to really be able to be a practitioner where your focus is ergonomics, you probably need some additional training. You've actually um, done some work and studied how telehealth can be used in OT and ergonomics specifically. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that, how telehealth and ergonomics go together? Sure, so Nancy Baker and I conducted a study quite a few years ago, looking to see if we would have a comparative effectiveness in providing a 
ergonomic job site analysis uh, to someone in their workplace and doing it remotely as compared to doing it within the same space as the, the client. Very small study, there were um, 10 people in the study, and we found that the people who participated were sat very satisfied with doing it remotely. And one of the areas that um, we actually incorporated into Project Career from our study was to do e-mentoring, um, electronic mentoring. So that could be categorized under an area of telehealth. So the mentoring was, again, virtual. So telehealth is an important mechanism for delivering occupational therapy services. And I want to qualify that it's not for every client um, that you'll see, but it can be used very effectively with clients perhaps that are in rural communities or um, say a child who's unable to come to school, but you want to be able to provide occupational therapy services or an early intervention to be able to do it remotely. And AOTA has embraced this. We have a uh, position paper, uh, a new position paper, updated uh, position paper, that's just uh, about a year old now. Um, so I, I wanna draw everybody's attention to go to the AOTA website and put in telehealth position paper to learn more about this important um, mechanism for implementing the services we provide. So again, Telehealth is just a tool that we can use to provide our services um, more broadly. But there's issues, and as there's, there's always issues. And the issue that makes it most problematic for us as occupational therapy practitioners is that we must be licensed wherever our client is. So for example, um, if I'm in Massachusetts and my client is in California, at this point in time, you know, our, our license is not portable, so I would have to be licensed in California. And for myself, I'm licensed in five states now because I want to be able to use telehealth technology to provide services. So you can see how that can become quite expensive. Um, but there's research now evolving on the, more research now evolving on the use of telehealth technology. And what we're you know, what we want to see, again, when it's a good match, is the comparative effectiveness. You know, are we getting the same outcomes from working with the client remotely as we would with working with the client in the um, same space? So I want to encourage people to really look at this. This is a, a growing um, area that can be used. And um, for students that are looking for interesting innovative projects looking at telehealth technology and its use i think is one i would encourage them to do so it sounds like a, an established mechanism to deliver services for people more in rural communities or who maybe otherwise couldn't access services but as you mentioned i just want to clarify it seems like the research base really needs to grow in regards to telehealth before uh, kind of something implemented on a wide scale? I think it can be implemented on a wide scale now, and it's not just for rural, rural communities, but that is one group of uh, population of people where it can be effective, particularly if 
someone has to drive two hours um, to get to the occupational therapy practitioner where um, we're providing uh, the same service but remotely. So this is an area of growth for occupational therapy. Um, I know that AOTF has funded a, at least one study um, using telehealth and I would draw your listeners' attention to the AOTF website to look for that study. I think um, Dr. Winnie Dunn uh, was one of the collaborators on that study. We can provide links to all these resources in, in the episode description of this episode. So yeah, thank you for sharing so many resources that uh, listeners can turn to and learn more about these topics. So yes, there's so much that's going on. Um, and I encourage your listeners to to really be proactive. I have found in my career of 40 years as an occupational therapist that um, when I find something I'm really passionate about, it's really, it makes my work my play. When you can get to that level, I think not only do you enjoy what you do more, but you also become a lot more effective at what you do. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that advice. And hopefully everyone can approach OT with as much joy um, that you do. So yeah. Thank you so much. And I wish you my best with your podcast. Um, Real quick before we wrap up, I don't want to take too much of your time, um, but I also wanted to ask you about your OT podcast. That's probably much more well-known than this one. Um, uh, But can can you talk to us a little bit about your show? Sure. And um, I'll give you, I always go back in time. This is what happens when you've been an OT for 40 years. So um, this goes back to 1998 again. Um, When I was AOTA president, I found out that within communities, you could start your own local access cable show. And so I actually started with my two teenage children, uh, Josh and Ariel. Um, Josh was 14, Ariel was 12. Um, A local access cable show called Lifestyle by Design. And it was my walking the talk about how can you promote occupational therapy more widely. And so this cable show always had an occupational therapy practitioner on it. And it ran for five years. Well, let's fast forward. My kids go to college. Um, They don't want to do this cool thing with their mom anymore. (laughs) Um, And technology's changed. And so um, I started doing lifestyle by design with a, uh, with a, um, a collaborator in Brookline, Massachusetts. And the technology changed and it now Lifestyle by Design went on YouTube. And so one day, um, my collaborator, Andrea, said to me, Karen, there's podcasts. And, you know, I think we should make Lifestyle by Design, not a cable show, but a podcast. And I said to her, I really don't want to do it. I really love, I love, you know, doing our cable show and having the person in the studio with us and talking to us. And she said, come on, we'll keep our cable show, but let's just try it. And so I said, what did we need to make it happen? And she told me all the equipment we needed and we got the equipment. She said, and Karen, let's, let's have you be the interviewer and I'll do all the technology part and we can all get guests. And so um, I got hooked. Um, (laughs) um, So, so Lifestyle by Design is a podcast, and our tagline is Helping You Solve Everyday Challenges. And we just invite interesting people in any profession, 
many happen to be occupational therapy practitioners or students, and we ask them to share their interesting stories with us on how they have addressed challenges. And um, we have uh, recently an author who won a, an award. She wrote a book called Dear Rachel Maddow, um, and she was on our show and um, read part of her book, um, which had great, uh, I think, punchlines for mental health uh, for elementary and high school uh, students. Um, and so I love doing it. I am able to be portable. I can use voice recorder on my iPhone to do interviews anywhere. So you never know when I might invite somebody um, to do an interview. And it's been, it's been very meaningful um, to be able to uh, disseminate information from so many different people. So we're not doing the cable show anymore. Unfortunately, unfortunately no more cable show, but Lifestyle by Design, the podcast is going strong and it's a great it's show. Much fun. It's really just like yours is. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love how you can use lived experiences of the guests on your show to demonstrate the effectiveness of, of OT, but also um, other strategies to overcome challenges that people may face. I guess one last thing before we go, we do a little, I like to call it the golden nugget segment where I like to ask my um, guests if they could tell OT practitioners one thing, what would it be? Be a lifelong learner. Always be open to opportunities. Read novels, read the newspaper, see where you can um, proactively involve occupational therapy. And while you do that, live life to its fullest and enjoy your role as an occupational therapy practitioner or student. Thank you so much. That's great advice. I really wish you my best on your podcast. And it's really, it's great. And I'm so glad we had the opportunity to meet in person too. Yeah, thank you so much. I can't wait till uh, AOTA in Boston. Be up in your neck of the woods. All right. I'll see you there. <laughs> 20. every single day because i love my occupation that concludes our episode today thank you so much for tuning in remember you can always find the resources we refer to during this show in the episode description as well as a link to our post listener survey please just take a couple minutes to fill that out and we'll see you next time occupation hey, 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 I'm on vacation every single day every every single day everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies do the shit I love it on a daily say you hate your job but you'll never leave never leave but said it wasn't easy but right now I'm living breezy build ascension from the ground up now my hands they ain't so greasy feel me So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the weight you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes, sometimes I feel as if I blow away I love the life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah that's what I say I got one life to live and I wouldn't live in no other way Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation, every single
single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation Every single day, every, every single day Go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it.